see if the Jerusalem apostles at first, if they didn't see the danger of the Judaizers and their message of works, then we ought to take note and be very careful that we don't fall into any subtle error either. I remember years ago, a man in our church meeting with the elders and, and trying to get our eyes off of the cross and adding something else to the gospel. And um, we said, no, no, we preach Christ and him crucified. We say with the Apostle Paul, I determined to know nothing amongst you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So listen, it is always a danger. Be on guard. The statistics I've seen indicate that most people believe that if we do enough good things to outweigh the bad things, we'll go to heaven. In fact, that's exactly the formula my mother gave me when I was in high school, and I asked her that question. I thought, that's terrifying. How can I keep anything like an accurate count of the good and bad that I do? For that matter, how can I even be sure that God and I will have the same standards of good and bad? Well, the Bible has bad news and wonderful news. The bad news is that we can never do enough to outweigh even one sin. But the wonderful news is that, as the song says, Jesus paid it all. Welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve's expository, or Verse by Verse messages, are the basis for these daily Bible classes of the air. We find ourselves today right in the middle of a message, which is itself right in the middle of this sermon series from Acts chapter 15. It's about the first ever church council, and it took place in Jerusalem. The apostles met there to answer once and for all the question, what is necessary to be saved? There had been such a controversy in Antioch over whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised to be saved that they sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to sort it out. And they took Titus along with them so that the Jerusalem apostles could meet a real live Gentile believer, maybe for the first time in their lives. Here's Pastor Steve now to explain further. It is very likely that Titus was the first Gentile that these Jewish apostles had ever met who had been converted out of a pure, idolatrous paganism. So the question Paul wanted these apostles to address was, what are you going to do with Titus? Were they going to demand that he be circumcised like the Judaizers from their very own church had been teaching? And if they did... That would mean a major problem for Paul. It would definitely hinder his ministry. In other words, Paul was looking for the apostles to just stand up to these guys. Stand up to these Judaizers from their own church and say that Gentile converts did not need to be circumcised because salvation was free and it was by God's grace alone. You see, how the other apostles responded on this very point of whether or not a Gentile believer needed to be circumcised was an issue, folks, of paramount Importance because this was about defining the gospel message. And Paul seems to be the only apostle at this point in time who understood this. And it would appear from these verses that because the other apostles didn't grasp what was at stake here, which was the purity of the gospel, that Paul was a bit agitated with them as leaders of the church because they had failed to lead by not taking a stand on this crucial issue of denouncing the Judaizers from their own church. This seems to be why when Paul speaks of James and Peter and John in Galatians 2, he does sound a bit sarcastic. He sounds critical of them. Notice how he refers to them. In verse 2, he calls them those who were of reputation. 
I think he's being sarcastic. Because in verse 6, he says, those who were of high reputation. Verse 9, those who were reputed to be pillars. It sounds as if Paul is scolding these men for not living up to their esteemed reputation as leaders of the church by taking the lead and being alert to this crisis and the damage that men from their own church were inflicting upon Gentile believers. However, now they did, for the first time, now they did have the opportunity to act as leaders by by stepping up to the plate and making a decision about how they were going to handle Gentile converts. You see, Paul has forced their hand by bringing Titus along with him and explaining that his ministry among the Gentiles was being undermined by members of their own church who told men like Titus that they weren't saved. You're not saved. You need to be circumcised to be saved. So, what were they going to do? Would they force Titus to be circumcised and appease the Judaizers? Or would they stand with Paul and approve his message that Gentiles did not need to be circumcised? As you can see, as I said, this was a decision of monumental proportions with eternal consequences that these men were facing. And Paul proceeds to tell us what they did and the pressure they faced in making their decision. Verses 3 through 5. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy at our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Paul tells us that the apostles decided that Titus, though he was a Greek Gentile, did not have to be circumcised. This was a historic decision on the part of the apostles because... If Titus, as a Gentile believer visiting the headquarters of Jewish Christianity, was not compelled by the most influential Jewish apostle to be circumcised, then no Gentile Christian would ever have to be circumcised as a means of salvation. Praise God. But even though these apostles agreed with Paul, their decision about Titus was not without a battle and some Intense pressure placed upon them. Notice that Paul tells us in verse 4 that even though this was supposed to be a private meeting with just a few of the apostles, some men, he said, sneaked into the meeting. One translator put it this way, they wormed their way into our meeting. So who were these men and why did they sneak into this meeting? What do they want to accomplish? Paul says they were false brethren, meaning they weren't true Christians. These were the Judaizers from the Jerusalem church. Unsaved Jewish men who said they were followers of Jesus, but they were not saved men at all. They were not converted men because though they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, they were still trying to earn their way to heaven. And that is not the mark of a Christian. That's the mark of an unbeliever. So they came into this meeting, Paul says, in order to put pressure on the Jerusalem apostles, on Paul and Barnabas, to persuade Titus to submit To the right of circumcision. Paul says that they came into this meeting to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. In other words, they were present at this meeting in order to try to put Titus, 
this Gentile Christian under the same kind of bondage and slavery that they were under, that of keeping the Jewish laws for salvation. It is bondage. It is slavery. But the apostles, Paul, Barnabas, and Titus resisted this pressure and refused to yield to it. That's what Paul says in verse 5. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Paul and the other men stood their ground. They didn't consider, Paul says, for one moment having Titus circumcised. And the reason for this is because the truth of the gospel would have been compromised. It would have been destroyed. Not only then, but for all generations. For you and me. Notice what Paul writes at the end of verse 5. So that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. See, had Paul given in at, at this point thinking, well, you know what, it's only circumcision. What's the big deal? I mean, every Jewish male in this city is circumcised. Had he given in at that point, it would have been terrible. Because it was a big deal. If Paul had agreed to have Titus circumcised, then every one of us here would have been affected because the gospel of grace would have been not only compromised, it would have been obscured. It would have been destroyed. And from that point on in church history, the message of Christianity would have been that Anyone who wants to be saved has to not only believe in Jesus, but has to try to be good. Try to observe the Old Testament laws. Now, it would have been bondage. Not only bondage, more importantly, it would have meant no salvation for anybody. It would have indeed been the dark ages. Listen, all of us should be very thankful to God for the Apostle Paul the insight that the Lord gave him, because Paul was the only apostle in the early days of the church who clearly saw this issue and the dangers posed by the Judaizers. He's the one man that God used to keep the gospel of grace on course. So what does that say to us? Well, it is a sobering statement that we need to be on guard to make sure that we never drift from the gospel of grace. You see, if the Jerusalem apostles at first, if they didn't see the danger of the Judaizers and their message of works, then we ought to take note and be very careful that we don't fall into any subtle error either. I remember years ago, a man in our church meeting with the elders and, and trying to get our eyes off of the cross and adding something else to the gospel. And um, we said, no, no, we preach Christ and him crucified. We say with the Apostle Paul, I determined to know nothing amongst you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So listen. It is always a danger. Be on guard. So the decision on the part of a few of the apostles not to circumcise Titus, that really is, is a key moment in the history of Christianity. And it's this decision that would then be made into an official decree at the Jerusalem Council held in Acts 15. That's why I said earlier that Paul already knew what the outcome would be of the Jerusalem Council. But in reality, the apostles involved in the case with Titus had already made their decision. That's the reality. They already decided on this. But at the council, all of the apostles, not just a few of them, all of the apostles and all the elders of the church would now join those men of high esteem, James, John, and Peter, and would make their judgment now unanimous, public, and official apostolic teaching. And all of that, as I said last week, was introduction. It brings us to our study today as we continue looking at the Jerusalem Council, how they came to the formal position that Gentiles did not need to keep the law of Moses to be saved. Now, as we discovered last week, there were three speeches made before this council, all in the defense 
of salvation by faith. The first speech, as we saw last week, was made by the Apostle Peter, who defended salvation by faith by giving the people a a history lesson concerning how God had used him to open the door of faith to the Gentiles. He's talking about what happened years earlier. He preached the gospel to a man named Cornelius, a Roman centurion named Cornelius and his Gentile family, and they were saved, and they were saved by faith alone. Now this morning, we want to take a quick look at the second speech given to the council, and then we want to spend the remainder of our time looking at the third speech given to the council, because this is the speech that Luke devotes the most time to, and it is of great significance. So, after Peter's speech, Luke tells us about the second speech given by two men who we're very familiar with, Paul and Barnabas. What did they have to say? Verse 12. All the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, apparently, Peter's speech had made a profound impact on all the council members because the opening words of this verse tell us that all the all the people kept silent. In other words, no one who took an opposing view of salvation by faith had anything to say. No one was counteracting Peter's arguments. His comments had silenced his critics. And it was during this time of silence that Barnabas and Paul stood up and they began to address the council. And though Luke doesn't record any of their words, he does tell us that their speech was an account of the many miraculous signs and wonders that God had worked through them during their two-year missionary ministry amongst the Gentiles. Now, Luke only devotes one sentence to what must have really taken some time for Paul and Barnabas to go through this, because there have been many miracles that the Lord had done through them. But the reason Luke is so brief about this is because he's already written about these miracles in Acts 13 and 14. So there's really no need to say anything more about them now. But Barnabas and Paul, no doubt, went into great detail about these miracles because the purpose of miracles in the early days of the church was to confirm that those who did such miracles were God's true messengers. See, they didn't have a New Testament as we do. They couldn't say, well, just look up and see that Paul was an apostle. Look up this letter. Look up that. They didn't have that at all. So miracles were important because they confirmed that those who were speaking the gospel we're God's messengers. We read in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle. How do you know someone's a true apostle? Paul said, were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, the miracles authenticated that Paul was a genuine apostle, a true representative of Jesus Christ. And therefore, what he preached was indeed God's word. And what did Paul and Barnabas preach to the Gentiles? What did they tell them? They preached that salvation was by faith alone in Christ. And that's the whole purpose of Barnabas and Paul telling the council about all the miracles God did through them in the midst of the Gentiles. It was to confirm that their message to the Gentiles of salvation by grace alone and not by law, that that was God's message. That's their point. And like Peter's arguments, the argument made by Paul and Barnabas was not only convincing, but it was irrefutable. I mean, how could anybody argue against this? They couldn't. And so after another period of silence, because there was no one who could bring a sensible rebuttal, Luke tells us about the third and the final speech 
given to the council. He tells us that a man by the name of James stood up, he took the floor, and he began to speak. Verse 13. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. In the New Testament, there are a number of men with the name James. There's quite a few men named James. So the question is, who who was this James? Well, he was the half-brother of Jesus. He was a son of Joseph and Mary. And he's the author of the New Testament letter, the back of the New Testament that bears his name. This is the man who wrote the letter called James. And James really was the perfect one to address the council, perfect one to lead them to make a decision in this matter, because not only was James highly respected because he was the brother of the Lord, but he was also held in great esteem by everyone in the church because of his reputation for godliness. In fact, he was given the nickname Old Camel Knees, and that was meant to be a compliment, because his knees were allegedly calloused, just like those of a camel, from all the hours he spent on his knees in prayer. So old camel knees gets up, and he's going to speak. In addition, though, James was extremely Jewish in his orientation, being one of the primary leaders of the Jerusalem church, and a man who had great concerns that Christians obey the moral laws of God. And we know that because as you go through his letter, the letter of James, he mentions the law, the moral absolutes of the law, about ten times. So, from the standpoint of those who held the view that Gentiles did need to be circumcised to be saved, they must have been thrilled when James got up to speak, because they must have thought, well, here's somebody on our side. Here's someone who's going to say what's right. But he wasn't on their side. And that becomes obvious. It becomes immediately evident by the first thing he says in verse 14. He says, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Now, James begins his speech by wisely referring, notice, not to Paul who was, as the apostle of the Gentiles and the strongest proponent of salvation by faith alone, Paul was not on good terms with the Judaizers. They didn't like him. But he refers instead, very wisely, to Peter, because Peter is the apostle to the Jewish people. And knowing his audience, strictly a Jewish audience, James purposely, note this, he calls him by the most Jewish form of his Jewish name, Simeon. Not even Simon. Simeon. That was his legal given name. Remember, the Lord gave him the the name Peter, which means rock or stone. But his Jewish name was Simeon. And he reminds them about what Simeon had said earlier to the council, how God had used him in the salvation of Gentiles. Now, he's referring to the conversion of Cornelius and his family years earlier. And the point, the point, and it's a brilliant point that James is making, is that those who advocate that Gentiles must be saved by observing the law, have overlooked one obvious fact that God has already saved Gentiles, and he did it by grace and not by law. In other words, the fact that God saved Cornelius and his family without them having to observe the Mosaic law first proves that Gentiles are saved by faith alone. It's already happened, guys, is what he's saying. 
Why are we even debating this? It's already taken place. God has already shown us in saving Cornelius that way. In addition to making this very obvious observation, at least obvious to him, not obvious to the stubborn men who saw otherwise, I want you to notice how James words the salvation of these Gentiles. If you're a Gentile believer in Christ, this is a precious truth for you. He refers to their salvation as God taking from among the Gentiles a people for his own name. Folks, this is very significant because these are similar words that the Old Testament often uses to describe Israel as the people of God. For example, in Deuteronomy 7, 6, we read, For you, speaking of Israel, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So by telling the council that God is now taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name, James is making it very clear that in addition to Jewish people, the people of God now encompass those Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, later in his letters, Paul is going to explain that in this day and age that the Lord is building his church, which consists of believing Jews and believing Gentiles in one body, the body of Christ becoming family. He will later explain that, especially in Ephesians chapters 2 and 3. But for right now, James just wants everyone to understand that Gentiles are being saved and they are becoming God's people and it's happening by grace and not by law. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that God is through with Israel and the Jewish people. And I want to make sure you understand that. It certainly doesn't mean that God has replaced Israel with the church as some teach today. Paul devotes three chapters in the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, to explain that God has not permanently cast Israel aside. That there is a glorious future in store for the Jewish people as God will fulfill all of his promises to them when at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, the nation will turn to Jesus as their Messiah. They will believe on him for salvation and they will enter the millennial kingdom that he will establish on earth upon his return. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10 calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people he chose to proclaim his excellencies. God chose us, and he chose Israel to receive mercy. If salvation came to us by means of our own effort, that would not be mercy, would it? And it wouldn't display his excellency. It would simply be payment. Pastor Steve Kreloff will tell us more as he wraps up this message on the next Verse by Verse. We're glad you could join us today. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Find out more about Lakeside online at lakesidechapel.com. Or call the office for service times or directions, or if you have questions about how you can know for sure if you have eternal life. The number to call is 727-441-1714. And if you've been blessed listening to Verse by Verse and would like to make a gift to this ministry, calling that same number is one way you can give. 727-441-1714. You can also give online through the giving page at versebyverseradio.org. We're dependent on and thankful to those generous listeners whose gifts make it possible to air these broadcasts. Another feature of our website is our message archive page where you can freely stream or download any of our previous broadcasts. Once more, that's versebyverseradio.org. 
Let me tell you about one more website, and this one is especially for our blind listeners. If you have a digital talking book player from the Library Service for the Blind and want a free audio Bible for your digital player, visit blindbibles.com or call 800-838-5924. That's blindbibles.com or call 800-838-5924. I'm Jerry Peterson. In this debate between the Judaizers and the Apostles, the Judaizers must have been sure they would be hearing from an ally when James rose to speak. James was very Jewish, and he knew the Old Testament. His opinions carried a lot of weight in the Jerusalem church. Imagine their shock when James explained that the Old Testament prophets were in agreement with what Peter and the others were reporting. I hope you'll join us for the next Verse by Verse as Pastor Steve continues teaching from this passage in Acts that answers the most important question of all. What is necessary to be saved?